More than 40% of people in their 40s and 50s have both an aging parent and a child under the age of 21. Caring for people in multiple generations demands time, love, attention, and more. Welcome to Caught Between Generations with your host, Dr. Merrill Griff. Our program will bring you the information you need as a family caregiver for everyone for whom you care. With guest experts and resources to help you keep sane and organized. Now, here is Dr. Merrill Griff. Hi, welcome to Caught Between Generations radio show. This is Deanna, and I am sitting in today for Dr. Merrill. And I am so glad to be with you. I haven't sat with you for a few weeks, but I'm in the hot seat today. And so today, wouldn't you know it, we're going to talk about anxiety. And a little anxiety can be a good thing. It sharpens our senses and prepares us to take on challenges. But what happens when anxiety becomes overwhelming and begins to take over our lives for us and our children? How can we learn to manage and eventually overcome anxiety? Well, it's possible. Today, we're going to talk with the guest, Dawn Hebner. She's a clinical psychologist specializing in the treatment of anxious children and their parents. She has been featured on the Today Show, CNN, WebMD, and many other news and information outlets, and she is frequently interviewed by popular parenting magazines. Dr. Hebner's TED Talk on Rethinking Anxiety has been viewed over 200,000 times, and I watched it, and it was really good, and I think I'm going to watch it again. Um, She is the author of eight books, including the best-selling What to Do When You Worry Too Much and more recent Outsmarting Worry. All of Dr. Hibner's books echo her philosophy that children can and should be taught to help themselves, and I think that's the same for us, and that they and we are capable of overcoming stuck-seeming challenges. Welcome, Dawn. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Great. So, you know, this this is a really, I think this is a really important topic for today. Anxiety, yeah. worry, yeah, it's, it's really important. Um, but I'd love to ask you before we dig in, because we all want to know how to overcome anxiety, how to help our children overcome anxiety. I'd love to hear about... Um, what what drove you to write about anxiety? I'd like to hear a little of your own story. Sure. So uh, I struggled with anxiety myself, although I don't think I realized that I struggled myself. What first came to my attention was my son, um, who, when he was much younger, had significant fears. And um, I did what most parents do, which is work hard to help him avoid the things that he was afraid of. And even though I was a psychologist at the time, anxiety was not my specialty area. I didn't really know much about how to treat it. And so we just helped him avoid everything he was afraid of. And that's exactly the wrong thing to do. And it uh, helped his, his fears to grow exponentially. And um, I eventually sought out uh, help for treating him and had a hard time finding effective help in my area. So I started doing some research myself and came across something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a very skill-focused kind of approach to treating anxiety. 
And uh, I taught it to myself, and I helped him develop a skill set, and it uh, really worked to get his anxiety under control. So fast forward just a little bit, I wrote my first book about anxiety. I was excited to bring what I was learning to um, a broader audience, to to children, and so I wrote a a book about uh, anxiety for kids. And it took off mm-hmm. immediately, and I started getting all kinds of invitations to come speak to groups, and I was nervous about doing that. And um, I had had a long-standing fear of public speaking myself. And so <laughs> you and a million other people. Yes. Um, so initially, I just turned down all of those invitations, making excuses, you know, not saying that I was afraid, just making excuses um, about why I wasn't available to come. And a few months in, it occurred to me that that was just incredibly hypocritical, that I had written this best-selling book about anxiety, but I was afraid to go out and talk about it. So I, I did the treatment myself. I did the kinds of things that I was recommending to other people to do, and it was tremendously helpful to me, not only in terms of getting my own anxiety under better control, but also just giving me more direct experience with what it's like to actually use this skill set and do these things. And they're not easy, but they are doable. And that's the exciting thing about anxiety, I think, is that it's a very treatable disorder or, you know, it's a very treatable situation for for children and adults both. Oh, yes. Thank you for sharing some of your story. And I think um, that's what so many of us do. We have have a problem and we don't know how to overcome it. And so then we try to figure it out. And I think that ends up being, you know, some of the best um, advocates for this, for their children parents, uh-huh. advocates for their uh-huh. children, but then also some of the best writers, you know, through our own struggles is really um, where we can kind of find ourselves and help each other overcome those struggles. Right, right. You yeah. know, it's interesting because with anxiety, um, one of the things that's really clear is that the things that we feel the impulse to do when we're anxious are the things that end up locking anxiety in place. So when a person is anxious, they want to avoid the things that they're anxious about. When a child is anxious, they want to avoid, and they also want to seek reassurance. And so parents of anxious children find themselves reassuring and reassuring and reassuring and often helping their children avoid. And those are done in a very well-intentioned way. You know, parents are trying to help reduce their kids' anxiety. But it's exactly that reassurance and avoidance that um, sets anxiety in cement. You know, it's kind of the polar opposite of what needs to happen. So avoidance is one of the key maybe indicators of anxiety? Do you, would you say that? Yeah, so certainly when kids are avoiding things, chances are good that those are things that they're nervous about. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty clear to see an anxious child. Anxious kids ask lots of questions, lots of what-if questions, and they're imagining all kinds of disastrous scenarios and wanting to be reassured that those things aren't going to happen. Um, and then anxious kids avoid things. So uh, often children who are struggling with anxiety have trouble going to school, have trouble sleeping independently, have trouble eating. You know, they just have difficulty with things that um, kids who are not having trouble with anxiety are able to do easily. Really, 
have you versus anxiety that's out of proportion to the actual danger or threat. So anxiety is a, is a common and normal feeling, and the goal is not to get rid of all anxiety. Uh, you know, as you said in your introduction, anxiety can be helpful to us. It's kind of a signal that there's something that we need to be paying attention to, and sometimes it just, it's a signal that helps us to know that something actually is dangerous. So the goal is not to get rid of all anxiety or all worry. The goal is to learn how to manage anxiety that's out of proportion to the situation, to the danger. Okay, so so the signs, so you talked about the signs, some of the signs. So I'm assuming, this is what I'm assuming, that mm-hmm. that we that we think everybody has some anxiety. Um, but then for the kids that are struggling with anxiety, you're going to see more of that avoidance. You're going to see more of those what if questions. You know, what if I go outside and, um, and, and I get lost outside, you know, we're going on a trip and say your child says that over and over. I know that my child says those kind of things over and over and over. Um, yeah. And so, or what if you're going to be late picking me up from school? What if you're going to be late? What if you're going to be late? And you, you answered those questions already. (laughs) And so those are kind of signs that your child, um, has a little bit more anxiety and that there's, there's ways to help him or her overcome that. Correct. And, and the way to help a child is not just to repeat reassurances that really doesn't do the trick. So saying, I already told you that like three other times, were you not listening the first and second and third time? Right. <laughs> that's that's okay. not a good so answer. Yeah, but I mean, you're pointing out something that's just a really human response, which is that initially our inclination as parents is just to provide the answer and and to reassure our child. And when a child asks the same question over and over again, we start to get irritated. And um, parents getting irritated actually increases anxiety because now the child has two things to be worried about. One is whether or not you're going to be there for pickup, and the other is the fact that you're angry. And so, you know, it's very, very normal and understandable to be irritated, um, but that's not really the response that we're going for either, right? So mm-hmm. you want to try in as calm a way as possible as kind of the first line of defense to um, help your child remember they already know the answer. So you don't provide the answer again. Um, You're saying, well, we've talked about this before, or think about what happens every day. You're kind of providing the answer. Kids Mm -hmm. that do not have trouble with anxiety will accept that. They'll remember, oh, yeah, I know you're going to be here at such and such a time, and that's the end of it if a child does not have trouble with anxiety. If a child does have trouble with anxiety, they might say something like, um, well, you are going to be in the pickup line, right? And the right with a question mark at the end of it is still the pull for reassurance. It's still kind of wanting you to give that final affirmation and final reassurance that will help them feel more assured. And so when a child is asking questions repetitively, and even when they know the answer, they're needing you to say it anyway, that's a sign your child's child's having trouble with anxiety. And, you know, we can talk about what's the more effective thing to do in that situation. Absolutely. I'd love to hear that because I I happen to be that kind of mom who says, and sometimes I do it teasingly, I told you for the third time. But you know what? I get the right all the time, right? Right? And so that, that I can connect with that. I hear my child say that. And it's not that he's trying to be 
it's not that he's trying to drive me crazy, really, right. um, with Correct. the same questions. Correct. It's that he says, right, come on, I, I need you to, I need to know for sure. I need assurance that you're going to yes. be here because I'm, st- I'm still not feeling good inside, you know. Yep. So you're getting to something really important, which is that um, much of what fuels anxiety is difficulty tolerating uncertainty. So if there's any amount of uncertainty or doubt, anxious kids have a really hard time. And so um, they have trouble trusting their own knowledge about something. They need their parents to say it also. Often often they need their parents to kind of be fortune tellers, you know, to say things Mm -hmm. that you have no way of knowing, um, but they're wanting a sense of absolute certainty. And kids will often say something like, um, you know, do you pinky swear this or do you promise this? And they're really going for certainty, right? So one mm-hmm. of the things that's important to do, um, are you okay getting to recommendations at this point? Yeah? Uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. Unless, unless we want to talk about real quick, is there a difference between worry like just worry mm-hmm. and anxiety, is the, or do they kind of blur together, or um, does so worry, excessive worry, cause sort of that in, move into anxiety, and then yeah. we can talk about the strategies. So, so I talk about um, I, I touched on this a moment ago, but I talk about like uppercase worry, so worry with an uppercase W and lowercase worry. And you could do the same thing with anxiety, uppercase and lowercase. So the feeling itself, whether you call it worry or anxiety or nervousness, it, it, you know, there are lots of words that mean the same thing. And that feeling is a normal feeling, and it's a feeling that everybody has sometimes. And the feeling in and of itself isn't problematic. It's, it's a matter of degrees. So it's a matter of how often a child feels that way and how big the feeling gets and whether the feeling stops them from doing things that other kids are able to do. So no real difference between worry and anxiety. That's, you know, that's just semantics. Um, and I use worry because that's a kind of more kid-friendly term. Um, mm-hmm. But same thing. Um, so we're talking about worry or anxiety that gets too big, too fast. It hangs on. You know, it's not just kind of a situational thing and then it's over. Um, we're talking about the kind of anxiety that kind of hangs on and really impacts a child in a day-to-day sort of way. Okay. All right. Well, I think that clears things up um, in that sense. And I really like the idea of what is worry with a lowercase w or anxiety. And then what is it mm-hmm. with an uppercase w? Because really, I think about um, for adults and for children, you know, I, th- I think adults forget that a lot of our worry is really lowercase worry. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes, I mean, you know, I, I hear so many people say things that um, that they worry about day to day. It's posted all over social media. But I kind of think those aren't the big things to be worrying about. And if we're worrying about everything, then we're the amount of stress that we're going to deal with is going to be astronomical. And so, yeah. Okay, so I'm actually going to make a distinction that's a little bit different. So I would say that um, there are times that people worry, let's talk about children, okay, there are times that children worry about something that's a big life issue, and it makes absolute sense to worry about that thing. So if there's a significant illness in the family, if parents are getting divorced, 
if children are aware of the world situation and it's frightening to them. Those are big issues, and it makes absolute sense for people to worry about them. And people do need to learn how to manage that feeling so that they're not, you know, knocked out by it. But those kinds of worries are understandable given the magnitude of the problem. When I talk about uppercase worry, I'm not making the distinction based on how big is the issue. I'm making the distinction based on is the child feeling in proportion to the issue, right? So you were using the example a minute ago about your child who frets about whether you're going to be there at pickup. And I would imagine you're always there at pickup. And so there's not really a reason for him to fret in that way, but he does. And it's a consistent worry for him, even though his experience hasn't shown him that there's any need to worry about that. I would call that uppercase. Pardon? Oh, I was just going to say that is great. Can you hold that thought and can we come back to that as soon as we take a break? Yes. And we'll talk about the big life issues, the uppercase worry and the lowercase worry, and then we'll move on to some strategies. We'll be right back with Don Hebner. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where's your mom? What's she doing? You'd know if she was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know she's enjoying a full day of activities programmed just for her interests, like art classes, volunteering, pet care, and card club. And she's home by dinner. And what's different is that Sarah Care actually has nursing care right there with her. So you'd know. Try one free day of care at Sarah Care. Call 330-451-6108. How's your mom? She's just fine at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Where's your dad? What's he doing? You'd know if he was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know he's enjoying a full day of cooking, computers, yoga, golfing, and he's home by dinner. You'd know Sarah Care LPN and RN Nursing Care is with him to ensure he gets the right medications at the right dosages. You'd know. How's your dad? He's just fine. At Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at Sarah Care. How's your husband now that he can't quite take care of himself? Or how's your wife now that getting around isn't as easy as it used to be? You'd know if your spouse was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities, a full day of customized activities and their home by dinner and nursing care that's right there with them. How's your spouse? Just fine at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Try it for free. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at Sarah Care. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Dr. Merrill at CaughtBetweenGenerations.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, welcome back to Caught Between Generations. My name's Deanna, and I am talking today to Don Hebner, and we are talking about anxiety and worry in our children. Welcome back, Don. Thank you. 
All right. So you, right before we left, right before we left for break, you were talking about feelings in proportion to events and how our children are feeling those. Can you continue to talk about that a little bit? Yes. So the materials that I write have mainly to do with children who fret about things, worry about things, uh, feel frightened about things, even though those things aren't truly dangerous to them or they're things that are very unlikely to happen. So I'm distinguishing between that sort of worry, worry that's out of proportion to the actual danger versus worry about things that truly are dangerous or truly are difficult life events for children. So things like, you know, a child worrying if their parents have recently divorced or a child who's moved and they're worrying about going to their new new school. Those, I would say, are worries that are normal and in proportion to the actual difficulty a child is facing, right? And Mm -hmm. I'm contrasting that to a child who, let's say, is terrified that they're going to get stung by a bee and so they won't go outside. Or a child who's afraid that they're going to get sick, they're going to throw up, and so they need their parent to take their temperature every single day and reassure them that they're not going to throw up. So it's it's kids whose worries are out of proportion to the actual threat, right? Okay, yep. Is that what you called a false alarm? Yeah, so false alarm is when a child feels afraid of something, but that the actual danger is pretty minimal. So I'm going to just take a step back for a second and say one of the things that's important to do with worry, with anxiety, is something called externalize the feeling. So externalizing worry means uh, helping a child to think about their worry, not just as how they're feeling, but worry like a little creature, like a little pest, a little beast, a little monster, a little bug, some kind of externalized view of worry. And the reason that that's important is we want children to begin to question things that this little worry monster is telling them. So rather than kids just feeling what they're feeling, we want kids to begin to evaluate what their worry is saying. Worry like uppercase worry, worry like a personified being. And we want kids to begin to question that worry so that they can make decisions about whether that's actually something that they need to be afraid of or they need to be obeying their worry or not. And so one of the things that worry does is it sets off alarms, like it alerts kids to the possibility of danger, but often the danger isn't real. And so that's what I would call a false alarm when your like little pretend personified worry has pulled an alarm and made you think that something bad might happen, but that bad thing is really very unlikely. That's a false alarm. It's that old fight or flight feeling. That's right. That's right. And it's actually really useful for kids to know about the flight, fight or fight response, like to know that that's a normal physiological response and it's something that happens when we um, perceive threat, and threat is really broadly defined. So, you know, we perceive danger of some sort, and the fight or flight response gets kicked off, and we feel a bunch of physiological symptoms that are really uncomfortable. Um, And that fight or flight response happens whether or not there's an actual danger. So just because our heart is pounding and our stomach feels flippy and we get kind of sweaty, it doesn't mean we're actually in danger. 
it just means where you pulled the alarm and fight or flight has gotten set off. Right. So I love that you're putting the power back in your children's court and, and empowering them to question worry. Right. So this kind of externalizing and personifying worry is an important thing to do that allows parents and children to be on the same team against worry. So often when kids are anxious, their parents are trying to get them to do things that kids feel afraid to do. And when you're in that situation, it feels like it's parent against child. You know, parent is trying to get their child to speak up to the waitress at the restaurant, or parent is trying to get their child to um, sign up for an after-school activity that they've never done before. And it feels to the child that their parent is making them do something that's too hard and that they don't want to do, and, and parent and child is in an adversarial relationship in those situations. But if instead you have this externalized worry, parent and child can be on the same team and parents can talk to their kids about your worry is making you think that this isn't going to be fun or your worry is making you think you can't do it. Your worry is making you feel this way. You know, that kind of externalized worry. And a parent can join with the child in pushing back against their worry, talking back against their worry. So is it in in your estimation, is it... Because I think that kids, they, they see everything, whether we want them to see it or not. We don't have a, a lot of choices about what we model. I think we model the truth about our lives to our children and about our feelings a lot of times. Um, so what happens, um, do you feel like, what do you think? I'm sorry, not feel like. What do you think should we do when we are feeling some anxiety, if it's that um low-level anxiety, if it's not maybe those big issues that shouldn't be talked about with our children, but if it's low-level anxiety, where I'll just give you um, an example. I, I We have a puppy, and walking our puppy causes me a little anxiety because we have, in the past, we had some issues and we lost a dog that way. And so me walking my puppy makes me a little nervous. And so and my son, when I walk with him, I know that he can feel that. And I, we talk about that a little bit. And we say, okay, you know, we're we're doing this together. But then when I feel a little nervous, um, you know, I kind of say, I, I'm a little uncomfortable with it, but we're going to do it anyways. <laughs> and so what is what do you think about when we as adults um, feel that as, as well? Because I think that we definitely are parenting our children, but we're also living with our children. And we're doing life with our children. And so they see things. And how do we, how do we, um, how does that coexist? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, And parents certainly have the opportunity to be modeling how you manage anxiety. And part of it is that you acknowledge it. I'm feeling worried right now is a really good thing to say. And then you talk to your child about the fact that you're not going to let the worry be in charge of the situation. So Kids need to learn that they can be nervous about something and they can do that thing anyway. They can be nervous and they can walk towards the whatever they're nervous about rather than having to try to escape from it. So in a dog walking situation, you might say, I'm feeling kind of nervous about this right now, but I'm going to keep doing it. And here's what I know that lets me know that it's still okay to be doing this. You know, so if the other dog was um, hurt or killed in kind of a fluky accident, you can say, I know that was an accident. It's really unlikely to happen again. 
or I know that I've got hold of, of the dog and it can't get away or whatever it is. You're sort of talking about the factual kinds of things that you know that help you to feel assured that what you're doing is safe, even mm-hmm. though you right? And so, you know, I sometimes talk to kids about um, things that are scary but safe. There are some kids that there are some things that are scary and dangerous, and there's some things that are scary but safe. And when there's something that's scary and safe, we need to be talking to ourselves and reminding ourselves about the fact that it is safe and looking at some of the evidence that shows that it's safe to get ourselves to kind of move into the situation or stay in the situation. I think that's a really good distinction. Is it scary and safe or is it scary and dangerous? Right. I think that is, is huge as you're talking to your child. So you actually have a strategy that you use, am I correct, for tackling worry with children? Yeah. So um, in the, the new book, In Outsmarting Worry, there's essentially a formula that, that I talk about, an equation. So um, I compare managing anxiety to mathematics in that there's an equation that gets used And then it doesn't matter what the fear is. You just plug your fear and your situation into the equation. And and it helps you to understand what you need to do to not let worry be in charge. So the equation is that you perceive danger of some sort. You, You perceive a possible threat. And that leads to fear. You feel nervous or anxious or afraid. And when you feel anxious or afraid, you begin to do what's called safety behaviors. And safety behaviors are a whole constellation of behaviors that that anxious kids do designed to help them feel less afraid. So safety behaviors are things like uh, asking for reassurance repeatedly or avoiding a situation. If a child's afraid of germs or getting sick, a safety behavior might be excessively washing hands or avoiding touching things or um, being overly careful about what what gets eaten. So those are all safety behaviors, and those are designed to reduce anxiety and to keep you safe from the possible threat or possible danger. But safety behaviors are problematic because they stop children from seeing that the thing that they thought was dangerous to them is not actually dangerous. So as long as kids are doing the safety behaviors, they never get the chance to see that the safety behaviors are unnecessary. So in managing anxiety better, one of the most important things is for kids to learn how to identify their safety behaviors and eliminate them. And the lim- eliminating safety behaviors can happen either in a big way, you know, kind of all at once eliminating, or more typically it happens a little bit at a time. So kind of chipping away at the safety behaviors. But that's something that kids, even kids as young as six or seven, can participate in. So it's not just that parents are stopping reassuring their children, it's that kids understand that um, those reassurance questions are kind of like feeding their worry. And so kids can become part of the solution in terms of um, not doing the safety behaviors or accepting parents not accommodating all of those safety behaviors. I like it. I actually would love to walk through this. Is it possible for us to walk through this if talking about maybe a specific fear? Yes. Do you have one? All right. Do you want me to suggest one? <laughs> you know what? Um, I, I think that we could do any, but I'm going to let you suggest one. I think that would be great. Okay. 
So I'm going to talk about just a really specific fear, um, but listeners can remember that you can really plug any fear or any worry into this equation. Um, but let's talk about uh, a fear of going upstairs alone. So when kids are afraid of going upstairs alone, typically that begins with the perceived fear is that something might get me upstairs. So there's something dangerous and something might get me if I go upstairs. And that leads to fear, of course, that makes perfect sense. And then a set of safety behaviors that typically have to do with insisting on being escorted upstairs. So only going upstairs if you're with a parent or with a sibling or with your pet um, and being uh, unwilling to go upstairs alone. That's the safety behavior. And as long as kids are, are doing that safety behavior, they're not going upstairs alone, that keeps alive the idea that somehow going upstairs alone is dangerous, that if they do go upstairs alone, something's going to get them. So to remove that safety behavior for a young child who's really afraid, you would need to do something like have them practicing going upstairs alone, but initially in, in uh, gentle kinds of ways. So it might be at first that a parent's going to stand at the bottom of the stairs and their child is just going to run up to the top and turn right around and come back down again and do that back and forth, up and down, up and down, up and down many, many, many times. And then the next time you practice, it might be that the parent's going to stand at the bottom of the stairs and the child's going to go up and they're going to go all the way to their bedroom and come right back. And again, you're doing it back and forth, back and forth, because practice is really important with all of this. And then the next time it might be that a child is going to go upstairs, parents still standing at the bottom of the stairs, and a child's going to go into their room and they're going to do something. And you can make it fun. It might be that a parent is giving challenges like telling their child, go into your room and touch every doorknob that you see, or go into your room and twirl around three times, or go into your room and draw a picture of your favorite kind of fruit. So, you know, you're just doing little challenges to make it so that a child is extending their time up there. So you're gradually having it be that a child is practicing the very thing that they're afraid of with support. Eventually, you're having it be that the parent is not standing at the bottom of the stairs. The child is staying up there for longer and longer periods of time. But that's an example of a way that you you help a child to stop doing their safety behaviors. And they experience two things that are really important. One thing that they see is that they were afraid, but nothing bad happened. So that helps them to see that false alarm phenomena, that they were afraid, but the bad thing didn't happen. So their fear was a false alarm. And the other thing that they see is this piece that nothing bad happens so that they can go up there and there's nothing that grabs them. There's no monster. There's, you know, there's no danger. There's no bad guy up there. Um, and kids going up over and over and over and over and over will help to kind of cement experientially um, the fact that it is in fact safe to go up alone. Parents in that situation sometimes say, well, you know, my child will go upstairs alone when there's something they really want. So if they're going up to get the iPad, they'll run upstairs alone. Um, but if they need to go up to get ready for bed, they won't. Um, and if fear is a part of it, it's still important to do this very specific practice because the child needs to realize what they're doing. So it's not just the child is so distracted that um, they run upstairs and they don't realize they're going upstairs. They need to know. It needs to be explicit practice with doing whatever it is that a child's afraid of. Don, I think that was extremely helpful. I, I actually, I can't even wait to try this this weekend with my child because, I mean, like I said, we have a couple fears and I know that 
and right now we still have bees out and he's extremely afraid of bees. And I know that you talked about bees in your book, but I kind of started. So, oh, you know, I kind of giggled at that because I thought we've had a battle with bees, not only with him, but with my daughter as well um, when she was growing up. So I just thought this is a great model and that I can use this weekend. It's going to be really easy to use that. So, yeah, great. So we're going to go to break. We'll be right back with Don Heapner. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. How's your husband now that he can't quite take care of himself? Or how's your wife now that getting around isn't as easy as it used to be? You'd know if your spouse was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities, a full day of customized activities and their home by dinner and nursing care that's right there with them. How's your spouse? Just fine at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Try it for free. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at Sarah Care. Where's your dad? What's he doing? You'd know if he was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know he's enjoying a full day of cooking, computers, yoga, golfing, and he's home by dinner. You'd know Sarah Care LPN and RN Nursing Care is with him to ensure he gets the right medications at the right dosages. You'd know. How's your dad? He's just fine. At Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at Sarah Care. Where's your mom? What's she doing? You'd know if she was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know she's enjoying a full day of activities program just for her interests, like art classes, volunteering, pet care, and card club. And she's home by dinner. And what's different is that Sarah Care actually has nursing care right there with her. So you'd know. Try one free day of care at Sarah Care. Call 330-451-6108. How's your mom? She's just fine at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Caught Between Generations. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to drmerrill at caughtbetweengenerations.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back. This is Caught Between Generations, and I am Deanna Albrecht. I'm sitting in for Dr. Merrill today, who I know is listening, and she's excited that you've joined us. And I'm sitting in talking with Don Hebner, and we've been talking about stress, anxiety, and worry in our children and how we can help them overcome. Welcome back, Don. Okay, Don, so when we left for break, we had just finished up talking about this great model. A strategy that you gave us on how to deal with worries, um, how to help our children deal with worries and anxiety and overcome that. And so I, f- I said I felt like I wanted to do that this weekend. And so um, I, I want to move on, though, to some other questions. And so my first question to you is, um, how do, how do adults sort of feed into that worry? So, you know, I think I'm helping. I want to help my child. But sometimes I just, in, I, I don't mean to, but I sort of feed into that or we sort of feed into that as adults. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? 
I, I do. You know, I think it's done in a very innocent way. Um, I think that the main way that adults feed into worry is by accommodating it too much. So um, kids get anxious and they want reassurance and parents endlessly reassure. Or kids get anxious and so they want to avoid a situation or they want to keep their parent right with them. And parents allow that. So it's, it's the accommodation that's problematic. So that doesn't mean that we need to abandon our children. That's, you know, we, we shouldn't abandon our kids emotionally at all. Um, but it's more helpful if parents are labeling for their kids what's going on. So, you know, I think that worry is trying to scare you about this or let's talk back to worry. Let's not let worry be in charge of this. Um, and then parents are helping their kids to develop a strategy for how they're going to deal with whatever it is that's scary for them, rather than parents stepping in and rescuing or reassuring quickly. And one of the strategies that we kind of touched on, I just wanted to talk about in a little more detail, has to do with something called desensitizing um, mm -hmm. to, to a situation. So the best way to understand desensitization is it's essentially what happens when you jump into a cold swimming pool. So you jump into a cold pool and initially the water's really uncomfortable because it's cold. And after you've been in the pool for a few minutes, you don't notice the cold anymore. And it's not as if the temperature of the water has changed any, it's that you've stopped noticing it. You've stopped paying attention. You've gotten used to it. And our brains and our bodies are set up in that way to help us desensitize or get used to all sorts of things, not only things in the external world like cold pool water, but also to feelings and sensations that we have, including fear and anxiety. So we can help kids desensitize to their fear about things. So fear about doing something new, fear about dogs, fear of bees, fear of germs, you know, we can help kids to desensitize to those things by actually approaching them rather than moving away from them. And it's something that parents can most definitely support their children in doing. So if my child's afraid of getting on a roller coaster, I'm not going to, to say, all right, we're going to go ride that roller coaster right now. Yeah. So, okay. That raises a really good point. And that is, when do you need to treat anxiety, right? And many people mm -hmm. would say that it doesn't matter if someone's afraid of a roller coaster because you can live a full and happy life never riding a roller coaster. But if you're afraid of, let's say, bees, that might get in the way more because it becomes mm -hmm. hard to go outside for, for large chunks of the year. Or if you're afraid of dogs, that's more problematic because it's hard to avoid dogs, right? So um, let's, let's just use a bee example because it's actually a really common fear, right? There are many kids that are afraid of bees, some to the extent that they won't go outside in the spring or summer. And some go, do go outside, but they're vigilant about, you know, watching for bees. And if they do see a bee, they run. Um, and so a child in that situation, you can help in a step-by-step -step way exposing to bees in places where bees are by having them look at bees from a distance, maybe watch a bee that's trapped inside a jar. I have kids do something called a bee photo safari where they have a camera and the goal is to take pictures of bees because that gives them something to focus on um, that's interesting and fun. Um, so you're helping kids learn to go, you know, be around where bees are, be looking for bees and stay put when the bee is actually there in a step-by-step -step way. And um, that's something that parents can teach their children about and then help their children do, right? Mm -hmm. um, but again, you're kind of making a distinction between 
uh, is this fear something that um, my child needs help getting over or is it something they can live perfectly happy even though they have this fear in place, right? Right. Right. And I find it really interesting. Um, like my daughter wouldn't go outside for a while because of the bees. And so, again, I think that's something really easy that you can, that parents can do with their children, that whole model. We can go and we can study bees and I can put a bee in a jar and we can talk about that bee. And I love that you said being afraid is not the same as being in danger. Right. Right. And that's as we're having kids practice that's the main thing that we're trying to have kids see, that even with these steps that sound like um, they're easy steps, you know, it, it, you might be surprised by how scary it is for a bee-phobic child to see a bee even in a jar, right? So part of what we're helping kids experience is, is that phenomena that they're afraid even though there is no danger. So that fear gets triggered in an automatic way, in a, but it's a false alarm in that situation. And we're helping kids to learn how to be somewhat less responsive to that automatic fear response that they have. Mm-hmm. And so you're giving them a valuable life um, lesson because you're what you said earlier in the show, you said we're teaching them to trust themselves. And I think as adults, you know, that's, that's a, that's, so many adults don't trust themselves. They don't trust their guts or, you know, they say, I, 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 they're looking for answers everywhere else. They don't trust themselves. I'm going to do a little caveat because when someone <laughs> has trouble with anxiety, their anxiety is actually giving them false messages. Mm-hmm. So I think we don't really want to tell children that they should trust their gut on whether or not something is safe because their gut isn't necessarily giving them good information. And so some children need to be taught which of their thoughts and feelings make sense and are in line with the actual world and which aren't. So I think we can help kids to proceed slowly and we want to respect our children's feelings. You know, um, we wouldn't want to use the pool analogy. It's not like we want to push our kids into the pool but we do want to be encouraging them and um, facilitating their entering, you know, taking a step in, even though that seems scary for them. So putting one toe in at a time. Correct. Correct. Okay. You mentioned before that, um, you know, this, this is easy. So it's um, the steps that need to be taken are clear and they are remarkably effective. But it's actually a pretty time-consuming process, and both parents and children need to be willing to tolerate feeling uncomfortable. And in that way, it's not so easy. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, parents can certainly support their children in doing this, and children feel a tremendous sense of accomplishment and pride when they do do it. But um, parents need to be ready for this to take some time, because it does take some time. But the benefit is huge. I like that you said that because I think um, anytime that I've tried to do anything with my children like that, I, I know that there's going to be pushback, but I don't, when I say something's easy, I think I don't always remember that there's going to be pushback. I think I'm just going to be able to go follow this plan and it's going to work perfectly. Right. And I forget that I'm, I'm working with a little human who has thoughts and feelings and, and it's going to be a process. And I wanted to go back to one other um, thing that happens between parents and children. So 
it's not unusual for an anxious child to have an anxious parent. You know, people come by their anxiety innocently, and there's a genetic component. Mm-hmm. When kids are anxious, that triggers their parents' anxiety. And so if parents haven't learned a skill set themselves for managing anxiety more effectively, they're going to get triggered by their kids, and it's going to be hard for them to, to do the, the things that their children need to learn how to overcome. Okay, that's really good. So when when is anxiety something that that maybe we need to get extra help with? When is it more than just the average worry? Yeah, so I think parents often have a sense of when anxiety is normal and transient and when it's something that's really taken hold. If anxiety is making it hard for do for a child to do things that other kids their age do, so if anxiety is getting in the way of sleep, getting in the way of going to school, getting in the way of activities, um, if it's focused on something that uh, a child encounters, you know, frequently, um, and it seems like normal reassurance hasn't helped, and the anxiety. Um, is stuck and and even is growing, that's a time to get help. Um, and I think parents often have an intuitive sense of that when it is that they need help. And there are really, really good self-help tools on the market, books on the market. And then parents can also seek assistance from a mental health professional who can help teach specific skills to both kids and parents about managing feelings and anxiety more effectively. Okay. So, that's really helpful because sometimes we can't fix every parent do. We can't do that. Mm-hmm. Are there specific things that we shouldn't say to a child who has anxiety? Um, yeah. One of the least helpful things is to say, don't worry. Um, and it's something that we say all the time, you know, don't worry about that. So we can't just turn our feelings on and off and, um, Kids get really frustrated when parents tell them not to worry because uh, that's not really doable. Um, and another thing that's not so helpful is to tell a child to just take a breath. Um, again, that's something that is really common for us to do, to just say breathe or take a breath. Kids get very frustrated and annoyed with that because their experience is that they are breathing and it's not making any difference. <laughs> So, you know, slow, deep breathing does help with anxiety. It, it um, calms down the nervous system. But breathing is really only effective if it's something that a child has practiced. So if they really uh, know how to get themselves to breathe slowly and deeply in a calming kind of way, then it can be helpful to calm down anxiety. But if it's something that a parent and child have not practiced together and a parent says take a breath, not so useful. <laughs> it it kind of sounds condescending if I hear it from another adult. Take a breath. Right, right. Yeah, and I think kids feel that same way. Yeah. What about meditation apps? I know that's kind of big um, right now, and I even use one on my phone. Is that something that would be helpful for a child or a grandchild? Yeah. So meditation, breathing, and mindfulness are all really useful practices. Again, they're most helpful if a child is routinely practicing rather than a parent pulling out a phone and trying to have their child, um, you know, do a meditation app and they've never done it before when they're nervous. That's not so effective. Um, But certainly having kids learn how to slow their breathing, 
and slow their brains because often with anxiety, your thoughts, you know, kind of run away from you and uh, you start thinking of all kinds of dire possibilities. So having kids uh, learn how to slow that all down is tremendously helpful. It takes practice to, to be able to do it effectively. But there are some good apps out there, some good programs out there. Do you have any recommendations or are you, is that not something that you have? Yeah, the, the one that comes to mind is something called Just Breathe. Um, but th- there are actually lots and parents can go into any app store and put in meditation for kids or mindfulness for kids or breathing for kids and they'll come up with all sorts of things. And then it's a matter of just finding one that seems like a good match for a particular child. Okay, so we have about two minutes left, and we're going to wrap up. One, just your last piece of advice for a parent or grandparent that you can give. And I'd love to know where our listeners can find you online and find your books. Okay, so last piece of advice is just that anxiety is really treatable, and there are plenty of very specific and practical things that parents can can do with their kids that help them learn how to get a better handle on anxiety so that it doesn't impact them um, as, as negatively in their lives. Um, so my books are available wherever books are sold. All of the major online re- retailers and bookstores can order the books. And um, I'm available at my website, which is my name, dawnhebnerphd.com. That's wonderful. And they can find your TED Talk as well. Right. So that's available on YouTube. Um, if you put my name into the YouTube search engine, my, my talk will come up. Okay. That's wonderful. Well, I am really excited to, to go the, home this weekend and to, to see some bees outside <laughs> for the first time ever, right? Um, I'm really excited to try some of these strategies that you suggested today. So I can't wait to hear from our listeners. I would love if um, our listeners could email us and let us know what they found helpful from today's show. Um, Share your experiences with using these strategies and let Dr. Merrill know just um, how this has been helpful for you and for those that you care for. Um, Right now, there are over 40 million adults living with anxiety and worry. And so we don't want to continue that trend. This is something that we really need to get a hold on, um, hold on to and help our children overcome this so that, you know, together that we can live um, happier lives, more peaceful lives, really, and and feel like um, we have control. And so... Again, you know, join us next week at Caught Between Generations. You can find us online and um, leave us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for tuning in to Caught Between Generations with Dr. Mel Griff. Our program is live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to see you here next week.